Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, happy Super Tuesday and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Yes, we're a week old at justthenews.com and check us out. We're breaking all sorts of stories on Ukraine and Russia inside the Trump White House, big interviews, breaking news. It's a site that gives you facts without any of the opinion or point of view that too much of my colleagues in the news media are inflicting upon the American public these days. And uh, we're going to inflict a great interview on you today. That's right. We've got Bernie Carrick, the former commissioner of the NYPD, the former head of prisons for New York City, and a man who then went to prison himself and came out and became a champion of criminal justice reform. He was a driving voice in the criminal justice reform, prison reform package that President Trump managed to get through Congress. And he's here today to talk to us about some extraordinary new ideas on where the criminal justice reform movement goes next and what impact it's having around America, particularly in minority communities who are now finding a connection to President Trump as a result of seeing their relatives freed from prison, getting rehabilitated turning into productive citizens again inside their communities. Uh, This is going to be a great interview. There's a lot of personal experience that Bernie Carrick brings to this uh, issue, having been in prison himself, and I can't wait to talk about it. We also have some news on the campaign front from Ukraine, from Russia, and uh, we're going to give you that as soon as we come back from the commercial break. So stay tuned. Don't leave us. We're going to have a lot more news, including Bernie Carrick, former NYPD commissioner, here with us exclusively on John Solomon Reports. All right. Welcome back from the commercial break. In a few minutes, we've got Bernie Carrick, the former NYPD commissioner, a man who spent time himself in prison and came out and made a difference in the world by getting behind criminal justice reform, taking his experience behind bars and interpreting into a policy that uh, was one of President Trump's early success stories in his uh, presidency. Uh, But before we get to that in a few minutes, I want to talk to you about some breaking news. Last night, we broke a story about Joe Biden. Yes, remember that Ukraine story, the one that just won't go away? We had impeachment. The president was acquitted. Uh, We've had lots of big stories in ABC News and in uh, Washington Post and, of course, my own reporting. Uh, And the more that Joe Biden tries to downplay it and the more new evidence emerges that uh, suggests that the story he's been telling us all may not add up. The facts just don't add up. And last night, uh, I broke a story that I think is really important. It's a dramatic development. 
remember, the whole story surrounds Joe Biden's decision when he was vice president to force the firing of a Ukrainian prosecutor, a guy named Viktor Shokin. At the time this occurred in March 2016, at the height of the 2016 primary elections, when Donald Trump was rising in the polls uh, and Hillary Clinton was uh, securing the Democratic nomination, uh, Biden uh, uh, pressured the Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko, to fire Viktor Shokin, the prosecutor general, the attorney general, for lack of a better word, in Ukraine, the top prosecutor in Ukraine. At the time this occurred, we now know that Mr. Shokin, the prosecutor, was investigating Burisma Holdings, the natural gas company in Ukraine, that hired Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's younger son. Uh, over the three prior years before 2016, Hunter Biden's firm had received more than $3 million in payments. So this was a very lucrative uh, gig. Uh, uh, basically, Hunter Biden was on the board and he was getting paid, at least his firm was getting paid $166,000 a month. That's uh, a pretty good paycheck every month. Um, and so uh, at the time, uh, just before Joe Biden uh, pulled the trigger and forced the firing of Shokin, uh, Hunter Biden was getting uh, ready to be interviewed. The prosecutor, Shokin, was making preparations to interview Hunter Biden about why he was getting this money, what other corruption might be going on in the country. In addition, the Mr. Shokin had uh, uh, secured a court ruling allowing him to re-seize some of the assets that Hunter Biden's boss, the founder and owner of Burisma uh, Holdings, uh, had. And so the, uh, the law enforcement took... Uh, action there. And then a uh, neighboring country, Latvia, another Soviet republic, suddenly reported in February 2016 that they had seen a series of financial transactions involving Burisma, including some of the paychecks that were going to Hunter Biden's firm, and that they appeared to be suspicious, might be money laundering, and flagged those for uh, the Ukrainian prosecutors. All of that occurred in February of 2016, just before Joe Biden goes in the next month and gets Mr. Shokin fired. How did he do that? Well, there's a famous videotape. It's real simple. Joe Biden himself, during a 2018 interview captured on video, stated he went to the president of Ukraine and said, if you don't fire Shokin, you don't get $1 billion in USAID. That would have bankrupted the Ukrainian government. And so the Ukrainians complied. They kept their money and dumped their prosecutor, Mr. Shokin. Well, finally... Now, almost four years later from that episode, Shokin has gone to court in Ukraine and they've gotten a district court in Kiev to issue a ruling requiring uh, the State Bureau of Investigation, the Ukrainian State Bureau of Investigation, what we would call the FBI. They are required under a court order to open an investigation of, you've got it, Joe Biden and whether that um, decision, whether the effort by Joe Biden to force Mr. Shokin's firing was an improper attempt to influence or thwart an ongoing criminal probe in uh, Ukraine. Now, let's take a look at both side stories. Shokin says he was fired because he wouldn't stand down on Burisma, and Burisma was about to uh, blow up into the Biden and Democratic establishment's face in the middle of the 2016 election. Hunter Biden's going to be interviewed. Financial records are being flagged as suspicious. Uh, Joe Biden has a very different story. He says he fired the prosecutor because uh, Mr. Shokin was in, inept, in 
competent, wasn't doing a good job prosecuting corruption. Now, there's a really interesting question here. Whether Joe Biden had good intentions or bad intentions, under American law, he had an ethical obligation to recuse himself from this investigation. He didn't do that. And as we saw during the impeachment trial, several of those State Department witnesses that Adam Schiff himself called, what did they say? They said that Joe Biden created the appearance of a conflict of interest with Hunter Biden working for the Ukrainian gas company while he was overseeing U.S.-Ukraine policy. That's a big deal. Those state officials also said they knew Burisma was corrupt. Um, all of this now fast forwards to 2020. And what do we have? We've got a very important question. Uh, the Ukrainian government now, in the form of the State Bureau of Investigation, is uh, looking at whether Joe Biden's intention in firing the prosecutor was what he says it was or whether it was an effort to thwart or intimidate or end an investigation that dug into his family's finances. That's what the Ukraine's going to investigate. Meanwhile, I got a little more news for you. Senator Ron Johnson, the chairman of the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee, one of the very important oversight bodies in uh, Washington, he is preparing to issue subpoenas to get records out of the U.S. government from reluctant bureaucrats who haven't been providing it to his committee about, you got it, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and Burisma. Why would the senators be interested in this information? Well, a few months ago, you might remember, I broke a story that just before Joe Biden fired Shokin, just before he intervened and got involved in, the, in, in this dispute with the prosecutor, uh, Hunter Biden's own colleagues at Burisma, the American lawyers representing Burisma, descended upon the State Department where John Kerry worked. And they specifically pressured, lobbied, you can use the right word you want, I call it pressured. Uh, they were pressuring the State Department to try to end these corruption allegations, this investigation of Burisma, end this talk that Burisma was a corrupt company. When they did that, the documents that were released under FOIA that I won under a lawsuit with the help of the Southeastern Legal Foundation, well, they showed that they, they were invoking Hunter Biden's name as the reason why the State Department should get involved. Well, Senator Johnson and uh, uh, Senator Graham and Senator Grassley, three Republicans, all who oversee very important committees, uh, Judiciary, Governmental Affairs, Finance, all of them are asking the government to turn over all documents about what the State Department knew, whether Biden was involved in any influence on them, uh, whether Hunter Biden's name really made a difference. But they're getting stalled. They're not getting all the evidence that they want. And so that is why Senator Johnson is looking to uh, consider a subpoena. Let's keep an eye on that and keep an eye on that prosecution uh, investigation in Ukraine. It may be a very warm summer here in Washington as new revelations come out. All right. Well, enough with the scandal. We're going to be back in a few seconds with Bernie Carrick, the man who uh, was the NYPD commissioner previously oversaw the Bureau of Prisons or the uh, prison system in New York, worked for Mayor Giuliani, and then fell from grace, went to prison, served his time, and came out and made a difference by getting behind the policies that we now call criminal justice reform. You're going to want to hear his story. It is amazing, and he has some big ideas for where President Trump could go next and what effect this whole criminal justice reform movement may have on the 2020 election. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Temp check. 
What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back to John Solomon Reports at Just the News. And as promised, we have a very special guest today. The former NYPD commissioner, Bernie Carrick, joins us. He's got an powerful story of his own experiences, both in prison and then coming out of prison, becoming a champion voice for criminal justice reform, and which was one of President Trump's signature victories in the early part of his presidency. Commissioner Carrick, uh, welcome here. Thanks, John. Great, great to have you on the show. Um, since it's Super Tuesday, I thought maybe we'd start off with a little political question. So I want to get your take on, on what's going to happen tonight in the election and what's at stake in the race for America between the Democrats who are left in the race, Biden, Bloomberg, Warden, Warren, and Sanders. What's your take on uh, the final four and uh, what do you think happens tonight and over the next few weeks? Honestly, John, I, I was actually talking to a, a GOP group last night out in New Jersey and, uh, and, and I made clear to them that for the past 18, 19 years, in the aftermath of September 11th, I have consistently said that my greatest fear for this republic, for our democracy, is the influence of radical Islam, the threats that we face uh, by the people that, the same type of people that attacked us on September 11th and right. so many times before and after. But I'm going to be really honest, John. That has now taken a second seat. And and my bigger concern right now is Bernie Sanders and the socialist movement, this communist socialist movement. I swear, I think that it is a greater threat to our democracy than terrorism. Um, wow, that's a big shift in your thinking. It's, it scares me to death. I mean, you know, you have this socialist movement. You have all these young kids that have no conception right. of Millennials. what socialism really is. And, um, you know, they're, they're out there running, you know, rampant uh, behind him, uh, supporting him, and they don't have a clue why. They don't have a clue what socialism is. They don't know it's for the country. But I, I, I urge parents and I urge teachers to go back and look at history. Look at the, the Soviet Union, look at China, look at El Salvador, look at Cuba. You know, socialism does not work. And the last thing I want for this country is some major oppression, the loss of our economic freedoms, our religious freedoms, our, our uh, you know, the, the, the Second Amendment. These people want to annihilate our Constitution. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing time. And you look at these polls where 60 or 70% of young people think socialism's okay. They obviously have a disconnect from their their prior generations of family who fought uh, and shed their blood to to stop the spread of socialism and communism in the world. It's, it is a remarkable moment in our history. And, and you know what, John? When I talk to young kids today and I, I go through our history, right? Here's, what, here's their response to me. Their response is, I know what happened in the Soviet Union. I know what happened in Cuba, but that could never happen here. The reality <laughs> is, it could happen here. 
Yeah, and, I think I our think founding fathers knew it could happen here, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's an extraordinary time. Um, as you look at the shift, now the establishment's moving towards Biden all of a sudden in an effort to try to stop Sanders. Where do you think this ends up? Do you have a guess? Is it Bloomberg? Is it Biden? Is it Sanders that uh, is left standing when we're all done? Well, I think, uh, look, I think the party, uh, out of the three, I think the party's looking at Biden uh, right. to be the wonder boy, right? Uh, you know, he's having a difficult time actually realizing where he is on a daily basis. But <laughs> I don't think they care. Right. I think they know, they already know what happens if Bloomberg gets in. Um, uh, not if Bloomberg, if uh, Bernie Sanders gets in. Right. And Bloomberg is like an outcast, right? He's he's somebody that's, you know, who knows? He's, he spent a half a billion dollars already. It's Maybe a, he spends another half a billion. Yeah, it's uh, remarkable, isn't sure it? The amount of money. Wow. Crazy. I mean, it's crazy, crazy. Um, but I think, I think people have to look at his history, look at his record. Look at his shifting from policies that he implemented in the past. Um, you know, look at what he's saying today. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't think he stands a chance, but, you know, we all know, uh, you know, never say never. Yeah, well, I, I, on the issue of Bloomberg, you, you did a great interview with our own Kerry Sheffield last week, and you talked about this, but I want to ask you a follow-up on it. Mike Bloomberg's change of heart on, on the stop, question, and frisk policy that was so essential to New York for so long um, what do you make of that change, and what happens if he is the nominee? Does that boomerang back around on him with all the law and order voters in America? Yeah, I think it will. I, I think it's going to do two things. It's going to boomerang back on the law and order people, and it's also going to, I mean, the black voters are going to have to take a serious look at him because basically his explanation a few weeks ago was, you know, you take a bunch of black kids, put them on the wall, search them, and look for guns. Right. You know, that's a crime. That's illegal. Right. Um, what he explained he was doing. So I think the black voters are going to look at that. Uh, they're not going to take kindly to it. And I think law-abiding citizens throughout the country, they've got to look at this and, and say, you know, is this the guy we want in the White House? Um, is he going to support our law enforcement? Is he going to support ICE? Is he going to support the men and women to go out there and risk their lives on a daily basis? I don't think so. The um, I come from a, a few generations of Irish cops, so I'm the only non-Irish cop in my family. Though my father did manage to put me in cell block, and I worked uh, as a deputy sheriff for a while as I was putting myself through school, but. My whole family was buzzing this weekend about a speech that Attorney General Bill Barr gave uh, Friday or Thursday, I think it was, at the Chiefs of Police Association meeting in Florida. And in it, he diverted from his script, and, and he went out of his way to single out prosecutors, many of them liberal or Democrats, who are now refusing to file resisting arrest charges against defendants who assault police officers. And he, he really called them out. And I, I wonder if you had uh, what your thought is of, of these blue-colored cities that are now turning on their men and women in blue. There's a, uh, this disconnect between the political leaders and the very people that keep them safe. But you know what, John? It's just not turning on the cops. It's not just turning on the police and, and the law enforcement. It's actually turning on their constituents. It's actually turning on their voters. It's actually turning on the people that live in those communities because the biggest benefactors from crime reduction, violent crime reduction, murder reduction, the biggest benefactors are usually those black and colored communities. So at the end of the day, you know, that's who they're having an impact on. Wow. And for them to go out and say, we're not going to enforce the law. If you look at 
Rudy Giuliani from 1994 to 2002, there was a 65% reduction in violent crime right. and a 70% reduction in murder. The most substantial reductions in national history, right, in, in crime reduction. The bottom line is, in some of those black communities in New York City, the murder rate dropped by 80 to 82%. Wow. They were the biggest benefactors of violence and crime reduction. So at the end of the day, if you're not going to enforce the law and you're not going to do what you're sworn to do, whose loss is it? It's the communities. And, and at the, you know, you have to look at what these community people are saying, right? They, they want better schools. They want better jobs. Right. They want after-school programs. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, John, at the end of the day, they're never getting it. They're never going to get it, and here's why. Nobody wants to build a business or open businesses or go to school or live or visit a place where they're not safe. You think yeah. Apple is going to build a flagship store in the south side of Chicago? Absolutely not. That's a great they're point. They're not going to do it. So, so if you're not reducing violence, if you're not reducing the homicide rate and the shootings, if you're not doing that, guess what? You're never, ever, ever going to see better schools. You're never going to see jobs. You're never going to see tourism. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, the downstream effect never gets talked about. It's always just, you know, the men in blue against the mayor or whatever whatever the dispute is. But you're right. If, if the police hands are tied or they're risk-averse because they're afraid that uh, they're not going to be protected if they're in a situation. Uh, it does have that downstream effect to to the very people they're supposed to protect. Now you had thirty thousand, uh, more than thirty thousand officers under your command for a long time. Uh, when if if this had happened on your watch, where uh, there would be a refusal to suddenly protect police officers or charge the defendants who were assaulting them, what impact do you think it would have on the men and women? And what would you have done if you were the police commissioner? You know what, John? Uh, uh, luckily for me, and luckily for the NYPD, I, I actually had fifty-five thousand men and women under my command. That's right. Forty-one thousand of those were uniform. Um, luckily for all of us, we worked for Rudy Giuliani, and there was no way that he was going to hang these cops out to dry. You know, I actually spoke to him this morning about this one issue. We had economic hardships back then in New York City, and you know, he couldn't give the cops raises. Right. But there was one thing, one major thing that every cop that worked under my command will tell you, and that is you got the benefit of the doubt. You got the support by me and the mayor. Uh, unless you were found to have done something criminal or administratively wrong, we're going to stand by you. You're not getting thrown under the bus. And that does not happen today yeah. because politics has just been infused in everything. And, and you know, on top of it, you now have all these selective and political prosecutions. You had, I mean, it's just the whole system. It seems like it's gone haywire. It is a remarkable time, and and from Washington to you know tiny cities or middle middle America cities, the issues are the same now. Yeah. And uh, someone has to reverse it. There's no doubt about it. Um, all right, let's go to your fa- one of your favorite policy issues: criminal justice reform. This has been such an amazing three years watching this issue evolve from a backseat issue to to a very successful law now that is is making a difference in the lives of real people. Um, 
before we get to the actual policy, can you talk a little bit about your personal experience? What it, what, what it was like going from being the, the prison chief and the NYPD commissioner to being in prison yourself and how it changed your lens on these policy issues of what happens in prisons and what we need in the reform arena? Well, look, I, I think, uh, you know, for those that don't know, you know, in 2004, I was nominated to take over the Department of Homeland Security. Right. I had a nanny uh, that I paid cash to over a two-year period. That led to a series of investigations, and four or five years later, I actually pled guilty to full statements and tax charges and was sent to prison for four years. And as somebody that ran the largest police department and the largest jail system in the entire country, I was pretty, I was pretty confident. I know what the system is like right. until I got in the system. And I realized, you know, we're putting way too many people in prison that should not be there. You know, we take people, we're locking them up for civil violations or regulatory violations. We're turn, turning that into criminal conduct. For example, a commercial fisherman catches too many fish. We lock him up criminally. Instead of suspending his license or take his boat or take his fish or whatever the case may be, no, we turn him into a convicted felon. We destroy his life for eternally, like eternally. Until the day he dies, he can't get his license back. He can't go back and do the only job he's ever the only job he's ever done. There are tens of thousands of people in prison like that. Wow. Prison should be designated for bad people to do bad things. That's what prison was initially created for. People that you want to protect society, you want to protect society from, that you know, bad guys. That's what prison's for. But we're taking first-time nonviolent drug offenders. We're sticking them in prison for twenty to forty years. We're mm-hmm. taking first-time white-collar um, nonviolent offenders and giving them life. Life. I mean, it's completely absurd because we've turned into a justice system where everybody, everybody believes. The only remedy is prison. But what they don't understand is that you take them out of the workforce, you crucify, you destroy their families personally, professionally, uh, financially, eternally, until the day they die. And that conviction never goes away. Never, ever goes away. Even in my case, I was pardoned by the President of the United States uh, two weeks ago. On, uh, on February 18th. But the reality is that conviction is still on the books on my record. Yep. So, you know, forever, forever until the day I die. Is that what the founding fathers wanted? Is that really what they wanted? You to be punished for life, no matter the crime? I get it. If you, you know, if you committed a murder, a rape, if you were a violent felon, okay, Life in prison may be the, the necessity, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, anybody and everybody that's convicted of a felony, you are punished for life until the day you die, and it just shouldn't be. Yeah, it's a, an amazing debate, and for a long time it was it shunted aside, and, and now we're thanks to President Trump and the, the law that you helped champion, um, uh, we're now having a, a more serious discussion both in the media and in the political spectrum as you advise the Trump White House, where do you think the next part of the movement goes? Where does criminal justice reform need to go next? What are the next two or three things that we might be able to reform to build on the incredible success that occurred in 20, uh, 2017, 2018? 
I think I think the pardon process, right? The presidential pardon process right now goes through the pardon office, which is in the Department of Justice. Right. Which means the same people that prosecuted you, you send them an application to ask for them to recommend a pardon to the president. Yep. They're, that's the reason. A little bit of a conflict of interest. I think Amy Klobuchar called it a right. conflict of interest in a, in a recent debate. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's number one. Number two, we've got to do something to stop the selective and political prosecutions. We've got to do something to stop weaponizing the American criminal justice system for political reasons. We are destroying lives. We are destroying our political structure. Um, look at what they what, what they did to the president to his family, to his friends and supporters, right. to his lawyers, to Rudy Giuliani. They target, politically target, using the criminal justice system, and that's not what it was created for. So I, I think these are things that the Attorney General has to look at, and uh, and hopefully he does so over the next year or so. Now, when you when you look at this, do you see any chance for a bipartisan deal in Congress, or do you think the next round of changes ought to be at the administrative level, given the partisan nature that we're we're seeing in Washington today? Well, I think look, you know, I worked with the Obama administration for two years. That's right, trying to get the First Step Act passed, trying to get the same programs and policies in place, and when President Trump was elected, I remember people calling me and saying, you know what, it's over. It's never going to happen under this guy. And Isn't two that and a half amazing? Years later, I was standing in the Oval Office when he signed that law, and I have to tell you, I actually, I never thought it would happen. I didn't think it would happen. But when you have determination and people like Jared Kushner right. and Brooke Rollins and, and, and people like that that are fighting on, on the president's behalf and, and getting out there you know, on a bipartisan level um, to make these changes— and explain to people, you know, this is for America. This isn't for the president. This isn't political. This is an American issue. Right. That's what this is. And I think people have to understand that. It's um, it's an absolutely extraordinary um, dynamic in the Congress. But as you look at, uh, and you yeah. know, President Trump calls it Trump derangement syndrome, all of the animus that seems to keep the Congress from doing things that benefit the American public. But Klobuchar's comments, that she clearly agrees with you on the pardon process, do you see any leaders on the Democratic side that can be engaged that could possibly help get something through before the next election? I don't know. Here's the problem. Behind closed doors, they will tell me, they will tell the president, they'll tell Jared Kushner, this is 100% the right thing to do. Right. 1,000%. Will they do it publicly? No, they won't, because they'll be crucified by their party. Yeah. You know what? That's not the way the system is supposed to work. And uh, any, do you see any panacea in the uh, any solution, any antidote that stops this uh, strange politics from keeping us from getting the uh, people's business done? How do you fix it? Well, I think I think one thing that fixes it, or at least moves it in the right direction, is after the election of President Trump gets reelected. You know what? I think they've come to the realization that you know they're not going to beat him. They're not going to throw them out of office. They're not going to win. So at some point in time, they're going to have to focus on who's going to run four years after. And if they want to do anything, they're going to have to produce. I mean, they don't have one, not one issue that they could say they accomplished 
in the yeah. last four years. A record Not accomplishment, one. so important if you're on your resume, and yet you're right, a lot of them are rounding up an empty resume right now. That's right. That's exactly right. So I had uh, I was very fortunate to be one of the early reporters who got to interview Alice Marie Johnson. In fact, she jokes that I, I put her on her first plane since she had uh, gotten out of prison, and she came to Washington and she wowed our our little show at the Hill newspaper. And um, I was really I, you know I'm, I'm pretty calloused, and so after you cover news for thirty years, you think you've seen and done it all. But hearing her personal story, her gratitude to a president that you know she wasn't a Republican, but certainly was grateful to the president. How important is her personal story and the thousands of other new ones that are being created every day through the CGR movement? Uh, how, what impact might that have on the election in terms of minority communities coming around and giving President Trump a second look or, or expanding their support for him? Well, look, here's the bottom line. And I think we've already seen a major surge in the black vote for this president. But yeah. I'm going to tell you something. All they have to do is use a little common sense, look at what he's accomplished, Look at what he's doing, you know, whether it's the lowest unemployment rate for, for blacks in, in the history of recording, whether it's the 400 percent increase in black business ownership, or whether it's criminal justice reform in the manner in which he's instituted, that is going to basically have a major, major impact on the black population in this country. If they're, they're using their common sense, all they have to do is look at it, and they're going to know how they should be voting. Yeah, you walk into, you know, I'm lucky to travel a lot, and I walk into a lot of these uh, uh, urban communities, and they have heard the promises of Democrats for 40 years, and they call it lip service. Uh, And I think that the President Trump's record is certainly resonating, and the question is, will it turn out in the the form of vote? But you're, uh, just in my own travels, I've seen it a lot of people talking in ways about Republicans and Trump that I wouldn't have imagined uh, three years ago. Now, there's a guy on the other side, Joe Biden, who the establishment is trying to get in over Bernie. And uh, he has a pretty significant support among black Democratic voters, at least if you take South Carolina as a bellwether. What do you see in his record on criminal justice reform and how might Trump use that against Biden? Because his record is not exactly what his rhetoric is right now. No, well, that's that's the key. I don't see anything in his record, number one. Number two, I think long-term, Look at Biden and those that were affiliated with him for the past four decades. Right. Four decades. Look at the communities in Baltimore, in Delaware, in in Chicago, in Milwaukee, communities around the country that have suffered in poverty, violent crime, murder, that no one, no one in the White House under Biden, under Obama, no one dealt with. No one flipped it. No one turned it around. And you know what? That was the time to do it. When Biden was vice president, President Obama was in office, that was the time to do it, and they failed. Biden failed. This president has not failed. This president continues to do it on a daily basis, even in the aftermath of being attacked by the international press, by the fake news, by the Democratic Party, by the never-Trumpers, by... Who, you know, the, the intelligence agencies, you name it, he's fighting the world, and he still has accomplished more, more than Biden has ever accomplished in his 40-year history. It's um, it's going to be a fascinating summer and fall to, to look at how the record of accomplishment versus the record of rhetoric are going to be measured up by, by the American public. 
Um, I, I, uh, Commissioner, I want to thank you for spending so much time. I have one last question for you because I know it comes up sometimes when I'm talking to people. In fact, last night somebody sent a, uh, a comment onto our, our website, and they, I want to ask this question. As criminal justice reform advances and more people get out of prison and the um, uh, it reforms in people's lives are occurring, how do you keep an eye on recidivism and making sure that the wrong people don't get released? Do you feel like there's enough... Uh, infrastructure in place and vetting in place and support systems in place to make sure that good intention people who get out of prison stay out of trouble and don't come back and commit new crimes. I th- I think the policies and the programs that the that the president wants in place um, and and signed off to be in place through the First Step Act, they will work if they're implemented properly. If there's the right oversight and accountability, if there's the right management. Unfortunately, right now, you have federal prisons across the United States that have yet to implement the policies and programs that the president has signed off on and put into law over a year ago. So I think the attorney general, the acting director of the BOP, I think somebody's got to light a fire under them, do what they're supposed to do implement the law as it was written, right. and uh, and I think we'll be a lot better off all the way around. Are there specific things that you see that are not being implemented that are the red warning flags? Well, I think I think the whole program services issue, look, you know, I used to tell people, uh, you know, they'd say, what are you going to do about programs to help right. people reduce recidivism? And I would laugh, and I'd say, listen, the programs in the BOP historically you know, that they would say that they report to Congress reduce recidivism, uh, quilting, checkers, um, you, you know, things like that, right, right. which are completely absurd. Of course. Um, you know, you need real programs. These are things they should be doing. The, um, the Elderly Care Act, to get people out of prison that are there, um, shouldn't be there. The law calls for them to be evaluated and get home if they're no threat to society, that stuff hasn't been implemented yet. So there's there's a bunch of stuff that was signed into law that they are not yet doing, and I think that's something the Attorney General, if he pushed the director of the BOP, that's something that would help the inmate population get the right people out of prison and get them back to their families, keep the right people in that deserve to be there, Well, that's uh, good advice, and uh, I will make sure to focus on that over the next few months at Just the News as we report out on that. So, Commissioner Carrick, I can't thank you enough for all the time you spent. You made our, our listeners a lot wiser than they, when they started, and um, your experience both seeing the prisons from the, the top when you ran them and as a commissioner, and then from the inside, and then what you've done now is, is just a remarkable journey. And uh, thank you for your service to your country and for what you've done on, on the, this issue because it's made a, li- a lot of lives a heck of a lot better already. Thank you, John. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Wow. What a what an interview. What an experience that Bernie Carrick brings to this whole issue of criminal justice reform, law enforcement, all the things that uh, are impacting our criminal justice system today. Uh, we're so grateful for the time Bernie spent with us. We're also grateful for all the things that you do to support Just the News. Check out our website, justthenews.com. We're breaking lots of news here. Thank you for supporting John Solomon Reports. And if you could do me one more favor, 
try to support the great advertisers that are supporting this podcast. They make it possible to do the work that we do at Just the News and John Solomon Reports, and they will relish your own support and your own uh, backing of their products. If you can vote with your wallet, these are the people you want to support, the advertisers that are making this program possible. We'll be back with you Thursday, and we will have an exclusive story and an exclusive interview about another example of weaponization of law enforcement, political weaponization of law enforcement. You remember everything about Russia collusion and how the FBI and its uh, agents who were very biased against Trump, how they concocted an investigation into collusion that did not exist and then sustained it by misleading the FISA court. Well, I'm going to take you to America's heartland where another example of this occurred. It hasn't gotten the attention of the national media it deserves. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm going to give you one tiny hint so you come back and tune in on Thursday. Think about the show me state, Missouri. I've got some news about what went on in that state that will trouble you just as much as the Russia collusion case did here in Washington. We'll be back with you in a couple days. Until then, be safe and enjoy Just the News. John Solomon reports. Thank you very much.